very bright. Um, we need some lights here. And we are going to take one more week in chapter 2. And if you're just joining us today, we're going to have a little fun. Uh, if you offend easy, uh, don't today. Because everybody's going to be poked fun at, and I'm going to begin with myself. So uh, let's begin with a short video. Church has its own worship style, you know, which is cool. Some people are more expressive in worship, some people more subtle, and it's all good. Um, I go to a church that's pretty expressive in worship. It's um, it's a hand raising church. That's what it is, right? That's what you know. Anybody here go to a hand raising church? Am I here? Sweet. Who here does not go to a hand raising church? <laughs> some of you are trying. You're like, I can't. I want to, Tim. I need to get some momentum. <laughs> totally cool. But hey, if you're not used to going to a hand-raising church, you want to go and join us, feel free to join us, but don't feel like you've got to join right in, okay? Start slow. we got a lot of different hand-raises that we use. We actually have names for our hand-raises. So I'm going to walk you through real quick, okay, what they are, just to let you know. Say you're at my church, music is rocking, start slow. Hands in the pockets, little elbow flap, you're fine. Very subtle. Get warmed up. Get your heart rate up. When you're warmed up, start with the first one. Ready? Carry the TV. Carry the TV. That's our first one. Very subtle. Go to big screen. Big screen, a little wider. Next one's my fish was this big. My fish was this big. If you're a liar, you go out there. That's fine. Don't worry about it. Jesus loves you. Grace. Next one's hold my baby. Hold my baby. Got dueling light bulbs. That's our next one, dueling light bulbs. Got goalpost. Everybody knows goalpost. Throwing a heartburn. A lot of people like to do heartburn. Double heartburn, right back to goalpost. What's my favorite? Mufasa. Mufasa, that's my favorite. The circle of life. Tim, can you go higher? Yes, you can. You can take one hand, go a bunch of different stuff. Pointer, hatchet, schoolroom. <laughs> Release the doves, give the Lord a high five. Press it out. A lot of women like to wash the window. Wash the window. <laughs> and when you're comfortable there, go for the big three. Village people, Rocky, touchdown. There you go. There's your big three. <laughs> you're set. <laughs> There you have it. And we're going to move our uh, projector so that you can feel free to raise your hand and not put the little doggy sign up there. I saw that earlier. I was like, that's the Lord is good. That is fitting for all we're doing. Uh, I do need some, we need some lights in the back there so people can see the word. Um, I, I show you that because we need to learn to laugh at ourselves, right? Or we start to make caricatures out of the church. Or we need to learn to laugh at ourselves um, and be careful not to destroy the one for whom Christ died. Or we need to see the unity that permeates our diversity. Uh, that uh, if you're new here, honestly, I, you're free now. Eagle Bible Church, raise your hands. Just don't put them in front of the projector. Um, I want you to do that. I want you to feel free. We are not. Uh, if, if you've been here for a while, you notice we just, there's not as much clapping, and that's okay. There's different worship styles. Uh, but we need to understand the unity that perver permeates our diversity. I mean, if you were to go around Eagle, and you're in Old Eagle, and you're looking at some of the houses over off Broadway, you're like, unique. Uh, those are nice. It's, it's, it's diverse. If you come to my neighborhood, uh, one guy's called it the Dr. Seuss neighborhood. Every house is the same, just different colors. But we need to see the unity in our diversity. Otherwise, we make these caricatures. Uh, we make these caricatures, and I wanted to show you some. There's Will Smith. You know, Will Smith does have some big ears and a big forehead. Uh, I think that's uh, Angelina Jolie, if we, if we look closely. Uh, there's Sly. There's Stallone with his big chin, making a caricature out of that. I think that's Julia Roberts. 
Uh, next one there, Morgan Freeman. Who is that? Steven Tyler? Steven Tyler. And there, there's some political ones. There's Hillary, and we would be remiss without our president. But if you're not careful, we can do that with the church. Uh, if you were, I asked someone to make a caricature of me earlier this week, they probably would have taken that little nose of mine, that round nose, and just made it like a clown nose. The ears would have come out. The receding hairline would have been more. I need a haircut. You probably think I'm trying to grow it out. It's not. I've just not cut it. But what I want to show you today, I'm going to give you our main point up front because there's a lot of information today and I don't want you to miss it. Here it is. Holding to our convictions, we're going to cultivate a church unique while avoiding popular church caricatures. That's what I hope that we see from Acts 2, 42 through 47 today. I hope we walk away with the main things. Holding to our convictions. It is okay to have distinctives. It's okay to be Baptist. It's okay to be Presbyterian. Uh, distinctions. You can be complementarian. You can be egalitarian. You can be Calvinist. You can be Arminian. You can be continuationist. You can be cessationist. We'll talk about that in detail today. With that, we're going to cultivate a church unique for our culture for this time in 2014 in the Eagle Valley. No straw men arguments because we're not. We're going to avoid popular church caricatures. No straw men arguments. We're not going to say Calvinists uh, don't know how to evangelize. That's just not true. If you read church history, George Whitfield, one of the uh, most prolific evangelists, the Billy Graham of his day in England was a strong Calvinist. And so holding to our convictions, our church has convictions and it's okay to have, we're going to cultivate a church unique for our culture uh, while we avoid popular church caricatures. And you may be saying to yourself, what are some church caricatures? Hold on just a second. Uh, the, the outline for today will look like this. We're going to look at some, some caricatures of the local church. That is the truth exaggerated. You take a true picture and then you accentuate one of them and it gets deformed. You're, then we're going to look at a picture of the, of the universal church there in 42 through 47. And then we're going to look at vandalism, the truth corrupted. And underneath vandalism, we're, we're going to see the church then and now. And, and it's wrong to long for the church as it was in Acts 2, 42 through 47. It's wrong to long for that. Uh, then we're going to look at the leaders. I'm going to begin with myself. And then we're going to look at his people. My approach today is not a rifle. I'm not just going for one thing. I'm going for many things. I'm hoping with lots of biblical ammo to spread out to hit as many targets of the heart as possible. And so we'll begin uh, with some church caricatures, and we might as well begin right here at home. Uh, Let's have some fun with the Bible church, right? The Bible church version of Acts 2 42 through 47 would accentuate, if you move to the next one, you accentuate the apostles' teaching, right? That's what we are about. We are the Bible church. We have Bible in our name. God forbid we would ever move Bible from our name. I want to change the name of the church just because of that very thing right there. We don't have to have Bible in the name to be a healthy church. In fact, those of us in the Bible church movement, I grew up in it. Uh, That's where I learned it. We need to be careful of Father, Son, and Holy Scriptures. It's a truth. Next, we'll move to the other uh, popular one today, the seeker-sensitive version that that talks about the fellowship, that we don't don't want to make anything uncomfortable for anybody at any time because we're going to focus on the lost because that's what Jesus did. And you forget all the New Testament epistles were written to churches and pastors. Or how about the traditional religious version, the the breaking of bread? And there's a lot of talk of rules and and order and structure. And you must read from the Book of Common Prayer from this book. And you must have an Old Testament reading and a New Testament reading. And you've got to have these prayers and all these rules. And then you get into the breaking of bread and communion. And you talk about, well, the bread actually represents. And you get into these weird things. Or we have the finding God's will mystical version that accentuates the prayers and you get in there and you get into this God told me and God did this and God told me that and we forget that you know what praying may make things worse at first there's an article out on the table that tells you about that that praying may make things worse at first and and then there's this the, the classic one 
the uh, Fire M Damnation version. I actually had to go get a King James to, to affirm this. And fear, King James Version, came upon every soul. These are the churches that when you join and you become a member, you get a picket sign, right? That was funny. I saw this in Denton once. I was driving down the street and a guy had a picket sign outside of a, of a liberal church and he had God hates something on there. And I wanted to walk up to him and said, you're not helping. You're not helping the cause. You may be right in seeing God's judgment, but you miss God's grace. It's not what you say, it's, it's how you say it. And often with that, that fire and damnation version is you must read from the King James Version because that's what Paul used. That's funny too. Right? But then we can make fun of all the versions. You have the King Junk version. You have the King New King Junk version. You got the New American Slandered, the New International Virus, right? You got to learn to laugh at yourself, people. It's okay. It's okay to laugh in church because these are caricatures. And then you have the charismatic Pentecostal version. And many wonders and signs are being done. And we, we wonder about wonders and signs. We forget that little phrase that follows through the apostles. We start to make gradations. You know, you, you're a, you may be a believer, but you're not, you don't have the second blessing and, and you don't do this gift. So now, I mean, you just go over here in your little circle with the Bible. We're going we're gonna to accentuate the popular gifts. Learn to laugh at yourself. And then you have the cultic communal version and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And these are your branch Davidians. Uh, there's a church in California. There, there's, they're trying to infiltrate a, a section of the city that's very commune-driven. I'm just like, maybe not. And, and then you have, these are becoming more and more popular, the urban inner city version, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. And they want all of us to become poor, right? They want us to become poor, and if you're not poor and you're not in the inner city, you're not really doing the ministry. And I just want to ask that one question. Who's supporting you? Who's supporting you in your ministry? If you've sold everything. Oh, and then there's the one that I, I can fall prey to. It's the radical missional version. If you've been at Eagle Bible at any one time, we've gone through the book. And it's about day by day. It's not about just on Sundays, but we live the mission every day. And we can start using code words and new legalism. We missed the point of 1 Thessalonians to make it our ambition to live quiet lives. And then you got a, one that you may not know, but you have the completed Jew version. I, I've seen this sometimes. They are attending the temple and they talk about knowing Hebrew and, and they know the Hebrew better than you. And there are secret things in the Old Testament Bible code that they know because they know Hebrew. And all I love to say is, is I know Hebrew too. I do. But But the we have to look at the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. And my little girl doesn't know Hebrew and she seems to get it. And, and then there's this one. You've probably heard of this one, the house church version. They were in their homes and they missed the phrase attending the temple. And we talk about being in our homes and it's the pure church and it's the real church. And I just want to ask, what, what big church did you go to that you had a bad fallout with? And then you get into some more of the ones like the conservative Baptist version, right? They receive their food. Like, where have you ever been to a Baptist church where there wasn't food? I mean, they have food the day, right? Today, right before we begin our prayer and fasting, we'll have muffins. I mean, that's just what they do. I grew up in that church. Laugh at yourself, folks. Laugh at yourself. And they're conservative. They don't drink. They don't smoke. They don't chew. They don't go with girls who do. That's old school legalism. The pastor doesn't wear a tie. That's not going to be a good sermon. Okay. I mean, we wore this today because it was chillier and we're affirming a new elder. I look a little more, I don't know, nice. But next week I'm wearing jeans and shoes and a t-shirt, right? To my conservative Baptist, got to be in a three-piece suit every week. And then, now don't go too far with this. Then you have the non-teetotaling wealthy Lutheran version. That doesn't mean every Lutheran is a non-teetotaler. Don't read into it. Laugh at yourself, but they're a little bit more lenient than, say, the conservative Baptists. And they're wealthy. I mean, if you look at the, the real estate and the funds in the Lutheran church, just go online. That's where I got it. Millions invested 
and property. They're in the top three with the Roman Catholic and the Mormons. They had glad and generous hearts. Often in the Bible, it talks about when they had glad hearts. Uh, it has to do with drinking. Uh, Boaz was merry of heart. And so we can, we can overemphasize those. I mean, that's, that was what was hip and trendy as I was going through seminary. I mean, we had more guys getting on blogs doing this. Oh, I'm doing my, my theology in a pub. Oh, I'm not legalist. Okay, if I don't do my theology in a pub, am I, am I wrong? Now, I'd like to do it, but I don't, I don't know what some of you would think if I were down at the bonfire with Mick and we're doing Bible study. Would you go, oh my goodness, I can't believe my pastor was there. I would just say Jesus was there. He was called a glutton and a drunkard. Laugh at yourself. And then, God love you, there's the no church, no instrument church of Christ version. Notice it says praising God. There are no instruments in that paragraph, none. I'm just for you. I had to dig and find that for you. Right? I love acapella, but I also love the drums. I think one time, we were talking about one time having four guys up here doing an acapella song or two. I'd love it. I'd love it. But that doesn't mean everything has to be that way. And then for my wife, there's the liberal Methodist version that they were, had favor with all people. And you go read open doors, open hearts, open mind. We're open to anything. I mean, Jesus, Buddha, and it's not just the Methodist church. Don't read into it. It's just those mainline churches that you watch and you see that they say, you know, you know, the Bible's just not that true. And it's, it's one way. It's the Jesus of faith, not the Jesus of history. And, you know, we can do lots of other things. And then last but not least, it's kind of brought up in this long before the Bible church, the frozen chosen Presbyterian church. And the Lord added, God forbid you get out there and do any evangelism and you have any, it was God, it was all God. And there's this overemphasis on God's sovereignty. And that's how we can, that's what we can do with that paragraph. We can take those verses and we can make caricatures of the church. And is there truth to some of all of that? Absolutely. Is there good reason why certain people held to certain things? Yes. But what happens is if we miss the bigger picture, because what we favor, uh, we can lose fellowship with one another. And so what I want to show you is a, is a broad stroke picture. Broad stroke. We get detailed on one thing for, for the most part. Four strokes in um, uh, Acts 2, 42 through 47. This new community. Uh, you have Jesus who ascends, the Holy Spirit who descends, and you now have this new community. Let's walk through this, the truth of this text, a broad stroke picture of the church, and then we'll look at some of the vandalism that comes with it. And they devoted themselves uh, to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers if you wanted the four issues there, there's an article in front of all of those. The apostles, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, the prayers. There you have it. They devoted themselves to those four things. And we'll look more at those things here in a minute. And awe. The NASB or the, the King, New King James or the King James says, fear came upon every soul. This awe. Why? And many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. They were seeing these things done and they were, they, were, they were in awe. Have you ever been in awe? Just a week ago, Friday, I was in awe. I had an appointment in Minturn with a gentleman at a fitness club and, and I walk in and I, I see this blonde woman doing skaters towards me and I'm like, I think I know who that is. And I'm looking and, and then I look up at her trainer and her trainer smiles. And I just nod my head like, okay, I'm not going to be that guy. It was Lindsey Vaughn right there. And then the guy I'm meeting with is standing over next to a handsome African-American fella. And it was Tiger Woods. And I was in awe. I had my phone and I was texting Ashley, guess who I'm here with? <laughs> She's like, get pictures. And I was kind of like starstruck. I 
not in the exact same way, but they were in awe. Why were they in awe? Because signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. Why were the apostles doing signs and wonders? And why were they paying attention to the apostles' teaching? It's because the apostles were bringing the same authority that Jesus had. God was blessing the new community through them. And as they were writing scripture, they were doing these signs and wonders to validate the message. John Stott says it like this. Moreover, the teaching authority of the apostles to which they submitted was authenticated by miracles. Many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. Two references to the apostles in verse 42, their teaching in verse 43, their miracles can hardly be an accident since the teaching of the apostles has come down to us in its definitive form in the New Testament. Paul would go on to say in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with the utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. And so you see those signs and wonders done through the apostles. And that always brings up, and this is the only detail I'm going into today, it always brings up that issue anytime you're in a church of what do you guys believe about signs and wonders and the gifts? It's often called, what do you believe in the sign gifts? And so I have in your seat or every other seat a position paper it's called the EBC and the sign gifts, cessationist or continuationist. It's a continuum that will someday cease. I hope you get the humor in that. Let me, let me set it up like this. There, when I was going through seminary, there's this big discussion of, are you a dispensationalist or a covenant theology? Because all the, all the dispensationalists went to Dallas Seminary and all the covenant theologians went to Westminster and we had these big arguments and we'd lob bombs at each other because of who we were. And one emphasizes the uh, unity of Scripture through the covenants. One emphasizes the diversity of Scripture through the dispensations. I think they both can have some errors. And if somebody were to ask me and make me put myself in a category, I'd say I'm a covenant dispensationalist. <laughs> I believe in a unified thread through diversified panels and then I'd, you would go, okay, that's too much theology, move on. Good point. But I, what I don't want us to do, because we're talking about signs and wonders, you're going to see them all over the book of Acts, is make silly arguments. That's, that continuationists, those who believe to some degree or other, all gifts mentioned in the New Testament are available today. Here are some pastors and theologians who believe that. Martin Luther, he's pretty important to the church. Uh, Wayne Grudem, Gordon Fee, D.A. Carson, my one of my personal heroes, John Piper, C.J. Mahaney, and you all know Francis Chan. We don't make silly arguments in saying these men don't believe in the authority of Scripture. And then there are cessationists, those who believe to some degree or another, only some gifts mentioned in the New Testament are available today. John Calvin, he's pretty important. Jonathan Edwards, J.I. Packer, Dan Wallace. Dan Wallace wrote, wrote the book on Greek that all students across the country, whether they be from Dallas Seminary or Westminster Seminary, John Piper said when he was at Dallas Seminary, if I want somebody to learn the languages, I send them to Dallas because of that man who's a cessationist. Alistair Begg from Scotland, John MacArthur, and I put on there my old pastor, Tom Nelson, great men of God. Uh, we don't want to say then, oh, you cessationists, because you believe that to some degree or another, some gifts have ceased, uh, you know, you're limiting God. I would be very careful of saying that because I hold in my hand the limitation of God. There are only 66 books in here. There's not 67. There's not 84. So maybe God has chosen to limit himself. Be careful, right? When we go to these one side or the other. I want to show you again one more time the theological triage. These are level one of the things we would die for. These are the things, these are essential issues that deal with the eternal. The issue is of sign gifts is not salvific. It's not a salvific issue. Signs and wonders, whether they go on today in whatever form is not salvific. Level two, things we divide over, uh, though not eternal, there are essential issues to operate in a local church. 
the issues of sign gifts may be a reason we don't fellowship together. And so I would say to you, if you're seeking after you, these and you think they're all the gifts are in all in their New Testament form as they sat in the scriptures, if you're pursuing them just like that and you're going hard after them and you think everybody else should, might not be the place for you. But we believe it to be a level three issue. It's neither essential to your salvation nor uh, or essential to the local church nor eternal to your salvation. These are things we'll discuss. These are non-essential issues that are neither eternal nor essential for the local church to flourish. And I put that in there specifically so we would see that a local church can flourish without um, pursuing so hard the New Testament gifts as they are in that form. I had somebody leave this church once and they said to me, and I quote to you, I, I just don't sense the Holy Spirit in your church. Now that was either the most accurate statement in the world or the most ignorant statement in the world. And I said to that person, when you were here, did you sense love? And they said, yeah. Joy? Mm-hmm. Peace, patience, kindness? I did. So that's fascinating. Because those are the fruits of the Spirit. Oh, well, what I meant was, aha. Let's be careful. Again, making caricatures. Let's be careful how we articulate things. I've been very careful. I was very careful to articulate this in a way that is, that is broad and open and kind. Though you may not see in practice, that doesn't mean the Spirit is a, isn't at work. And so if you flip it over, here, here's what we say. Thus at EBC, we believe that we are cessationists to the degree that we believe that salvation is finished and the Scriptures are complete. I would say everybody in this room is a cessationist in that sense. You do not believe the scriptures are still being written. And you do not believe Jesus is still hanging on the cross. He is dead in the grave, and now he is risen. He is sit at the right hand of God. He died. He's not is dead. He's living. He died. He went to the grave. He's risen and sitting at the right hand of God. It, he said it on the cross. It is finished. So for, to some degree, we're all cessationists. And... <laughs> In addition, we believe all of us are continuations to the degree we believe God can do what he wants, when he wants, and the way he wants it. Where an individual draws a line on that continuum will be different for others, and we are content with that. We'll focus on level one issues when we teach our children. We're not teaching our children to heal in Jesus' name. But we'll address third level issues with a balanced approach and forms that are more appropriate for this type of dialogue. And then I put in there something from Kevin DeYoung that shows that we have a lot more in common. And so if you're wrestling with those things in your own life, I, I put some articles out there, Signs That Don't Mean Much. It's a wonderful summary of Jonathan Edwards' The Religious Affections, that just because uh, you're, you have high affections doesn't mean the Holy Spirit is at work. Just because something happens when you pray about it doesn't necessarily mean it's from God. I also put out there, if you really want to study this, uh, two articles, Why I'm a Cessationist by Tom Schreiner. He's a wonderful man. And Why I'm a Continuationist by Sam Storms from Oklahoma. He's a wonderful man. That's where I'm from. And though Sam and I might disagree on a few things. And so where you draw the line, maybe you're an open cessationist, right? You're an open cessationist. You're not grumpy in your position. You're closed but hopeful, or, or you're a closed continuationist, that you're not ecstatic in your position, but you're humble and joyful, and you see the Holy Spirit working at different ways and at different times. I say all that because you're going to see a lot of things happen in Acts, and you need to know where we land on it. If you want to know my position, I'll come right out and I'll say it. I'm not scared. I lean more to a cessationist position, but I believe God can do whatever he wants when he wants it. I had a wonderful conversation with a gentleman this week. He had heard my sermon last week. He said, hey, can we talk about some of those third tier issues? I said, absolutely. He said, man, I just want to let you know my position up front. I, I believe all the gifts are there in their New Testament form. I said, praise the Lord. I said, and, and we got in specifically to the issues of tongues. And he said, yeah, I, I believe tongues are, can be a private prayer language. I said, well, what do you mean? What do you think of the public? He said, oh, 
the, the public has to be, uh, it has to be a sign to the unbeliever, not two or more, has to be an interpreter. Said so, so you would agree with me that's probably in a small group that's not probably the best place to start speaking in tongues. Oh, uh, no. But he believes in a private prayer language. And I said, okay, 1 Corinthians 14 allows you to see that, that that is to edify yourself. But it also says we, the prophecy is better because it builds up the church and that's what we want to do from a public setting, both from the pulpit and small groups. And we agree. And we fellowship together. And he said, man, I'm a charismatic. And I said, well, define for me what that means. Because there are charismatics who would say, judge, you're lesser than because you don't speak in tongues. And he said, oh, no, I'm not that way. He would say, I would tell that person God is bigger than that. Praise the Lord. I love talking to you. Like, I want everybody to be this kind of charismatic. It was good. Great conversation. We both prayed, walked away, and and we fellowshiped together because it's a third-tier issue. It's wonderful. And so, so that's, where, that's where I land. But, but I, uh, no, I land on some other issues that I don't, I rarely say from the pulpit because I don't want to be put in a category. Because if I told you what I believed about the sovereignty of God, the sinfulness of man, sufficiency of Christ, you'd say, he is what? I cannot believe him. Do you believe the, the guy that started that? He did this in church history. I'm like, I can give you, and I will here in about three minutes, the scandal of church history that there's no perfect pastor, including the one that you're looking at right now. There's no perfect elder. That's why we have an elder board. And that's just there in the first couple of verses. Now back to Acts 2, 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. They had believed. They had heard the message and trusted in the message. And there were these ongoing generosities, not a one-time sell-off. It says they were selling. It was an ongoing deal. Their possessions and belongings, and they were distributing, that they were giving it away, the sale of those proceeds, as people had need. It wasn't that one-time call for the Eagle Bible, come forward, bring your diamonds, bring your earrings. We're going to put this all together and build it. it. That's not what it is. It's much more informal than that. It's, it's the people who have given me baby clothes. It's the people who have given me shoes for my boys, and that's us passing it on to other people. Formally, it's a, it's a benevolence fund. I mean, but we're not going to call for you to... to uh, there is an exception. If you have an iPhone 6, here's what you can do. You can, you can either be stingy and keep that for yourself. I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. That's so wrong. That's so wrong of me to ask you for your iPhone 6. <laughs> no, we're not going to do that. And I want to show you Acts 5.4, that if you do decide ever to give something to the church, while it remained unsold, did it not remain in your own? And after it sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you've conceived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. More on that in a few weeks. But the point was when they sold their stuff, it didn't, it didn't go into this community pot. They had this idea that they could give it as they saw fit. And so you can't read into this and say, oh, we must be selling everything. And because we're not putting everything uh, and we're coming together and not all of us are wearing white shirts and blue jeans, that uh, we're not a New Testament church. It's just not true. But what it does show is not only were they glorifying God, Acts 2, 43 and 44, but they were gathered together and they were showing compassion to one another. And I will say this, as much as I can, as much as we can as a church, we have a benevolence fund. People have used it before and we will continue to use it as there is money available. But if you ever need something, you come to us and talk to us and we'll do what we can. And if personally, I say this, I go on record because I want you to know it. If you personally need something, you can call me. I got money in the bank and I'll help you. And I'll even lend it without interest. I'm dead serious about that. I can't give you all my money. I got three little kids to feed and a wife to feed. But as much as you need, I can, as much as I can give and as much as you need, we'll do it, right? And I think any other elder would do that. I think any other person in here who is in that position would do that. That's what the church is about. I have folks who say, we want to keep your children so you can go to Aspen and go to uh, the 
Gideon conference. We want to keep your children, and we're going to pay for them to go to the Glenwood pool. Praise the Lord. Those kind of people. Amen. That's how it works. You need something, we're here to help. Amen? I think the elders would back me up on that. We're not here. We don't have an unlimited budget, so don't. I need a house. I'm not going to help you. If you need to make rent for a month, let's talk about it. But we do have policies in place that when somebody comes to us for that, we ask, how are you doing in your finances? It's not just a handout. And not only were they glorifying God gathered together, but they were going out and day by day, attending the temple together. They were literally going to the temple where there were other Jews. What? And breaking bread in their homes. They were in small groups. How convenient. And they received their food with glad and generous hearts. It's like they had fish and chips every day. They were praising God, and this is a veiled reference to the great commandment. They were loving the Lord their God with all their hearts and mind and strength, and they were having favor with all people. They were loving their neighbor as their self. And what was the Lord doing? He was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. They were in large groups witnessing to the Jews on their home court. That's why we gather here. Anybody in the sit, the town can come see what we're doing. We're in small groups. Mine will meet today at 4.30. Should be a good time. They had regular meals. They were praising and having favor. And the Lord was adding those who, that's an interesting one, were being saved. I thought I was once saved, always saved. I mean, I was taught that by my conservative Baptist church. And good for them. They were right. But it's a process. There is a, a permanent salvation, a, position, a progressive salvation, and there's a positional salvation. Notice the next slide. Ephesians 2.8 says you have been saved. It's a done deal. It's over. That is your position. 2 Corinthians 2.15 says you are being saved. Where, to those who are being saved, we're an aroma. It's an ongoing thing that I am more holy now than I was 10 years ago. Believe it. And I, I can't wait till 10 years from now that look back and go, man, I was a scallywag. And then finally, one day I will be saved completely, permanently, forever, not to think about it anymore. I will praise God from then on out. And so if you were to put one word on all of those verses to kind of summarize it, You'd get, they were devoting themselves. They were fearing God. They were gathering together. They were serving one another. They were worshiping the Lord and they were evangelizing the lost. That's good. And you know what they were doing? They were just doing what the head of the body was doing. Did you know it was Jesus's custom to gather with those, to instruct them and to pray and worship God? I did a little more research this week. Three times... I think it's three times in the Gospels, as was his custom. Mark 10, 1, he, he, as was his custom, he was teaching. Luke 14, 6, as was his custom, he was going to the synagogue. Luke 22, 39, as was his custom, he was praying. Seems like not only did Jesus die for the church, but he, he modeled for the church. And so not only are we empowered to do it, we have an example in Jesus Christ himself. And that is the local church. But uh, that, that is, we've seen some caricatures, and that's the truth exaggerated. We, we've seen the picture, that's the truth captured. And now I, I want to take a few minutes, if you, if you will, to let me talk about the vandalism of the church. But first, but first let me wrap it up with this. You have these, uh, I call them the five marks. Uh, you get four from the book of Acts. Uh, you get the first one, it's a learning church. That's why we go to the Word. It's, it's a loving church. That's why we help each other. Uh, I see we're a worshiping church, that they were attending temple and homes, praising God with all their life. And I added here, though it's not an axe, and we'll get there when we go through 1 Corinthians, it's a working church. Ephesians 4 says, He gives some as apostles, prophets, evangelists, and teachers, so that... They may equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And finally, we're a witnessing church. We're going out. But with all of that, there can be this, this scandal, this vandalism. There's truth corrupted. And what has helped me with that 
in the past several weeks because I went to a conference and met this man uh, and got his book because the Lord used him in my life. It's called Accidental Pharisees, Avoiding Pride, Exclusivity, and the Other Dangers of Overzealous Faith. And you may be thinking to yourself, Judd, you're always mentioning books. I can't read all these books. No problem. I'm going to read it to you today. We're going to look at the church. And then we're going to look at its leaders. And then it's going to look at its people, specifically their gifts. And then we'll be done. Because we don't want to be vandalizing the church. We don't want to make caricatures on the one end. We don't want to vandalize on the other. How do we vandalize the church? How do we corrupt Acts 2, 42 through 47? I'm just going to read. I'm going to read slowly. My wife said, please read slowly. And of, no, I'm not going to do it like that. I'm going to do it like Chuck Swindoll would do it. Chuck Swindoll can take any book. He could take an insurance seminar book and he could read it to you. And you would like, I want to be an insurance salesman. So that's hopefully what I can do here. When it comes to the church and the vandalism, of the church. All of the hardcore Jesus followers who had left everything to follow him when Jesus had been taken were nowhere to be found. These are the guys I used to point as examples of what it means to radically follow Jesus. But in the darkest moment, when all seemed lost, The courageous lacked courage and the committed showed no commitment. It was only one frightened secret disciple who stepped up to the plate. One frightened secret disciple who stepped up to the plate. It was Joseph of Arimathea who stepped up to the plate. Joseph of Arimathea is mentioned in all four Gospels. He's called rich in Matthew. He's called powerful in Luke. He's called uh, righteous or powerful in Mark. He's called righteous in John and in, in Luke, and he's called secret in John. He's the guy who didn't want to let everybody know he followed Jesus because he thought it might ruin some of uh, his work relationships. Ever been there? And yet the Bible said he's the one that went and took him off the cross. And if you and I become legalists in the new sense of the new legalism, we may overlook many Joseph of Arimathea's in our congregation and in our life. And so what Larry Osborne asked us to do in that book is look at yourself and be patient with others. Don't be quick to categorize. Don't have, and he, I quote him, thank God I'm not on that list. And I can do that. And you can too. Don't mishear this. We're not lowering the bar. Don't don't walk out of here saying that. I mean, if that's the pull-up bar, we're not bringing it down. We're going to help you get up to it, and we're going to help you do a proper pull-up. None of this waggling stuff. Just right here. We're going to help you. And you're going to help me. Because sometimes we get tired, and none of us can do pull-ups. So don't hear me lowering the bar, but hear me giving a a pastoral exhortation, mostly to myself, but those of you who may be like me, uh, who, who, when you came to know Jesus, you got rid of all your secular music in the name of garbage in, garbage out. And now I look back on that and go, I threw away hundreds of dollars of good music in the name of being pious. Garbage in, gar- I've said that. And yeah, guys are, yeah, knuckles, yeah, garbage in, garbage out. Let's just listen to Tomlin, that's it. No, that was me. And then me, I, I can be the Bible knowledge guy. I can be that guy. Don't, don't nod your head, yes. Thank you. Here's what Larry Osborne said of himself, and, and really it's just, he called me and said, can I use this when you're early life? From the earliest days as a Christ follower, I had had an insatiable appetite for scripture. I'd stay up late in the night reading, looking up cross-references, jotting down notes in the margin. I'd close my eyes and remember where a particular verse was on a page. My wife can tell you that. 
That was my goal. I'm going to realize Romans 12 is up here to the right. I saw my hunger for God's word as a sign of my superior dedication to Jesus. I couldn't understand how someone could be saved and not have a deep craving to comprehend all that the Bible has to say. I considered people who failed to study it in depth, spiritually tepid and lazy. I never, it never dawned on me, great insight, that my growing hunger for God's word might be connected to my spiritual gifts and God's future calling of my life. As I look back, it makes sense that God would give me a passion for the book he wanted me to preach. I don't know, I didn't know it at the time, but I had a bad case of gift projection, a chocolate-covered arrogance that assumes everyone is just like me or when, or when, will, when, or will be when they grow up. We're nodding your head. Some of us who can consume scripture like that can be that way. Oh, you don't know covenant versus dispensationalism? What are you not reading? Do you not know theology? And it's sad. And it's silly. And then we can get involved in the the new legalism. Oh, we're never the old conservative Baptists don't drink, don't smoke, no chew, but we're radical, we're missional, we're biblical, we're whatever. And it's the new litmus test. We allow our personal passion and calling to become a litmus test by which we decide who's in and who's not a genuine disciple. And we've taken a step too far. At that point, we are no longer building the kingdom. We've started to tear it down. That is the new legalism. And churches, see, we can long if we're not careful and just leave it at learning, loving, worshiping, worshiping, witnessing, and leave it at that and let people work it out as they see fit. If we're not careful, oh, I want to go back to the New Testament church. I've heard, I can't, I've heard that over and over. Let me read you about the New Testament church. As long as we're being brutally honest about the New Testament church, we need to note one more thing. The Apostle Paul planted some pretty lame churches. That's why he had to write all those letters. The church of Galatia was quickly enamored with a different gospel. It happened so quickly, Paul was astonished. And then there was the church at Ephesus. It looked great on the surface, but it was rotting on the inside. Oh, sure, it was doctrinally sound and filled with dedicated, hardworking people who preserve, persevered in the face of hardship. Sound like Eagle Bible Church? <gasps> but they had lost their first love. How about the church in Philippi was filled with generous people? Paul said it. You've given so much to me. He had gratitude for their support, but they were torn apart by a bitter church fight between two women, Yodia and Syntyche. Paul had to plead with them to get along and asked everyone to help out. As far as the Corinthians, I mean, we always quote them, right? Well, let's just say they were so spiritually dysfunctional that Paul had to write them two letters and long letters at that. Right? And then we can look at the church. 500 years ago, the church appeared to be on life support. The scripture, scripture had become buried beneath many layers of tradition and ritual that no one in the pews knew what they actually said. 100 years ago, a tsunami of liberalism swept over seminaries and over many of the prestigious pulpits in the land. Many of the largest and most influential ministry platforms were filled with pastors and theologians who denied the supernatural, rejected the fundamentals of the faith, and questioned the reliability of the Bible. Fifty years ago, scholars bemoaned a cultural irrelevance of the church, and many wondered if the church still had a future. Time magazine in 1966 said, Is God dead? Experts predicted the end of, the, of propositional truth, the need for dialogues instead of preaching, and the unwillingness of anyone to put up with a sermon longer than 15 or 20 minutes. We're going on one hour. But Osborne says that they were wrong. The local church did have a future despite of all its warts and failings. And we shouldn't be surprised Jesus said something about building his church in the gates of hell, not holding it back. And so there's no reason we should long for the Acts 2 church because honestly, the Acts 2 church wouldn't want us. 
They had racial problems. They didn't want the Gentiles in it. We'll get there here in a couple weeks in Acts 6. They didn't want us. They had a lot to learn because they were led by, by leaders who have a lot to learn. Right? Leaders can fall into the trap. Leaders can do that. By the way, it's not just the church in Jerusalem that wasn't all it's cracked up to be. The same holds true for leaders in the early church. They were also far from perfect. For instance, Peter was a hypocrite. He was famous for his ups and downs, his foot-in-the-mouth disease, and three times he denied knowing Jesus. All of that took place before he saw the resurrected Lord and was filled with the Spirit. So most people think that after that, everything was different, but it wasn't. Remember Galatians 2. He was eating bacon. But then when the Jews showed up, he's like, eh, I don't think I can be there. And Paul had to rebuke him. They were like, ah, Paul. But Paul, he had his own issues. To begin with, he had an immense struggle with pride. He was bent towards arrogance, was so strong that God sent a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment him and keep him from becoming conceited. Apparently, that was the only way to keep him from flaming out. And then there was his mercy-deprived response to John Mark. And they went their separate ways. Paul refused. He wouldn't budge. It became a big issue that Paul and Boniface split over it. And time seems to have proved Paul wrong because God chose John Mark to write the gospel of Mark, which means God considered him worthy to write part of the Bible. But Paul didn't think he was worthy to go on a short-term mission trip. Go figure. But Peter and Paul weren't the only ones with feet of clay. The early church was filled with leaders far less stellar. And we go to those early church, uh, and you look fast forward a millennium, and people quote Calvin. You don't want to be a Calvinist because Calvin was a prolific writer and a profound theologian, but he allowed his followers to kill one of his opponents. We're like, no, we don't want to be associated with Calvin. Well, then you don't want to be associated with Martin Luther. You're reformed, right? You're, you're not in the Catholic Church because you're Martin Luther, but he was anti-Semitic and his writings were embarrassing. Yet many Protestants wouldn't hesitate to trace their words to the 95 theses he nailed to the door. Or John Wesley, A.W. Tozer, all of them had horrendous marriages. And you look at that and you go, And then I look at myself. And I come here full of pride, still prideful. I'm a proud man becoming humble by God's grace. But there was more in 2009. I'm going to come, I'm going to preach the Bible, and folks will flock. I'm that good of a teacher. You're laughing back there because you know me. And I sat here teaching the book of joy, Philippians, one Sunday with 30 people so angry at myself, my choice. I went home and told my wife, I feel like Spurgeon. Looking out at the people, preaching the Bible, and I'm, I can't even live up to what I'm talking about. When is me? And my wife in her quiet way didn't say a word because she knew I had to get over myself. And you can do it too. We can all do it. Because we can head into the church wanting this church to be a piece of something we liked at another church. And we come to it with these big expectations. We come to it not really knowing what our spiritual gifts are. And we come to it either with gift projection, be like me, Or we come to it with gift envy if I was only just like that guy. And this is one of the most helpful things for me in this whole book was when he said, gift envy can ruin a church. I say this because there are some of you in here who are evangelists and you need to hear this. I say this because there are some of you in here who are Bible teachers and you need to hear this. And I say this because some of you in here are radical and you need to hear this. Evangelists have a hard time remembering that most people aren't wired like them. They forget 
that their comfort in talking to strangers is a God-given gift, most of us will never be comfortable in taking total strangers, talking to total strangers, or aggressively turning conversation towards the spiritual things. Few of us will ever master the sales pitch and know how to close the deal. That's not sin. That's not spiritual apathy. It's the way God made us. He made half of us introverts. It's on purpose. It wasn't a mistake. Be free, people. And if you're like me, Bible teachers also have this built-in platform from which to fire guilt-seeking missiles. I hope you don't feel guilt. I hope you feel today like we're all in it together. We all look like Will Smith or Sly to some degree. Not long ago, I read a... Oh, here, here it is. You'll have a hard time imagining God would be pleased with anyone who isn't conversant in the finer points of theology. And you'll probably think everyone needs to know the general outline and theme of every book of the Bible. I've said that. That's sick. All 66, including Zephaniah. So if you want to date my daughter, just come with Habakkuk. Yeah. No! After reading this, I've got to be very gracious. I've got to repent, and we'll talk on that next week. Repent, for times of refreshing may come. No, I'm not opposed to rigorous theological training. I've earned three degrees, take seminary class. I know messed up theology can lead to a messed up life. That's the heart behind what he would say, what I would say. If your theology's off, your life will be off. But I also know that despite what many fellow pastors, profs, and colleagues think, it's possible, catch this, and don't go home and watch The Simpsons because of me, I'm just reading. It's possible to live a vibrant Christian life and be, God, be a godly parent, even if you know more about the theology of Bart Simpson than the theology of Karl Barth. That's good. And I leave the best for last. So if you're an evangelist, we just don't all share the gospel every day. We don't. And if I'm the Bible guy, I can't, you know, hang it over your head. Come on, walk me through. What are the four major things of Scripture? Come on, do it. You can do it. It's wicked. And if you're a missionary risk taker, no one gets to be on a pedestal like missionaries and risk takers. And still, we, we start to define, who's missionary? All of you are missionaries. We seem to think it's the guy in Papua New Guinea who's the missionary. Many Christian circles, they're considered to be the ultimate example of spiritual dedication and sacrifice. Their willingness to leave the comfort zone in order to advance the cause of the kingdom gives them an aura of being far more committed than the rest of us. But they aren't more committed. They're simply fulfilling their gifts and calling. Even more to the point, if you haven't been specifically gifted and called to go to the mission field or take a big risk for the kingdom of God, and you do so anyway, you might be out of God's will. That's right, out of God's will. Unfortunately, the message is seldom heard today. Instead, we're bombarded with gift projections of people who have been called to go and asked to come back and speak. They implore us to do what they've done, implying that if we don't, we either miss not listening to God or selfishly clinging to the comforts of this world instead of seeking the kingdom of God. It's no wonder many of us feel terminally guilty and I'll read one more thing because I want you to walk away from here free. There's a myth of the full-time ministry. Lots of baseless guilt and gift envy can be traced to the fallout from the unfortunate term that has found its way deep into Christian vocabulary, full-time ministry. It implies that people who make a living on the ministry are somehow serving God full-time while the rest of us serve Him in our spare time. And he wrote, and I will say with emphasis, that's pure baloney. If you are a Christian, you're in the full-time ministry. You are a believer priest on a special assignment representing God in everything you do. The only difference between those of us who serve in God in the so-called full-time ministry and those of us who serve him in secular marketplace is the organization that pays our salary and the setting on which we carry out our ministry. I hope you walk away encouraged. If you stock shelves at Walmart, run a pool cleaning service, or crunch numbers in a cubicle, you're in full-time ministry. Your assignment is to infiltrate a segment of society that would otherwise go untouched. I drove to Leadville yesterday to meet with one of the sweetest 
guys in the world. I, I met him randomly through a, a fitness thing, and he is a new believer in Jesus, and he drove from Crested Butte. I drove to Leadville. We had a sweet time, and he's wondering if he should go into the full-time ministry. And I said, Bubba. I didn't call him that. I just called him Bubba. I said, Bubba, you, the fitness industry needs you right where you're at. You love Jesus. It's evident. I mean, he sat there and talked to my wife and I over a pizza, working on nutrition. Um, <laughs> it's good. Sweetest guy. I, I just, it's like an instant friendship. And, and I said, you stay right where you're at because you're going to reach more people than I'd ever reach. And so it goes on to say, what you do is every bit important to the kingdom as anything done by people who get their paychecks from a paycheck from a church or ministry organization. Unfortunately, that message is seldom heard. Most Christians have an inadequate and incomplete theology of work. We think some things are spiritual and some things are secular. And so I hope you go to work tomorrow, this afternoon, and you think to yourself, you know what? I am a missionary for God on mission in the world right where I'm at. And as long as I'm learning in the church, both formally in big settings, informally in small groups they've met at the temple and in homes, and I'm loving, I'm willing to give away all that I have, that doesn't mean that you have to give every single nickel, it just means your heart has to be able to take care where you can take care of somebody where they can meet a need. And if you can't, you come to us and we'll try to find that somebody who can and you're worshiping every day of your life. It's not just during the four songs. When does your worship time start? What are your songs? No, we worship through song, and we worship through sermon, and we worship through communion, and we'll worship today as we watch the Broncos. And if you get DirecTV, maybe you can watch the Cowboys. Just make sure you fast forward through the commercial because they're horrible. And you're fellowshipping with somebody at 4.30 and you're going through a book together and you're learning how the gospel culture is created by gospel doctrine and you love one another and you grow together in, to be the Lord Jesus Christ. That's worship. And we're working together. Everybody doing their part. I'm going to send an article this week on the spiritual gifts. It basically boils down to this. What are you good at and what do you like to do? What is the desire of your heart and what do other people affirm? We don't need to get into these long lists. It's not a menu. I read that. The, the, the lists in the New Testament are not a menu. I think I'm going to pick teaching. and No. What are you good at? God's designed it that you should want to do what you're good at and, and what you long to do. I'll send it this week, and I want you to, to read it and, and say, am I giving my spiritual gift for the building up of this local body of Christ? That's the working church, and are we going out as we have opportunity. My wife sits at home with three kids. She homeschools. She doesn't have great opportunity. And when she goes to a soccer game, if she doesn't talk to somebody, it's not because she, quote, missed her chance. She is witnessing. And two of the three have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ primarily because of her witness. we got one more and I hope he comes to know the Lord. I hope he knows the Lord. But she's witnessing. That's a witnessing church. Some of you are in the marketplace. Some of you are so gifted evangelistically. I want you to teach our next semester stuff on evangelism because you're good at it. We need to learn from you. I'm not. I get nervous. I know all the arguments backwards and forwards. I don't say that pridefully. I just do because I've read them all. But I get nervous, like a little kid. Oh, golly, you're not going to like me. I do. But I do it sometimes, by God's grace and for his glory, and other times I repent of my lack. But that's what it's all about. It's not about overemphasizing one at the negation of another. And it's not, man, let's go back to Acts 2 and be them. I don't want to be that church they didn't have certain things. They didn't have you. Ever thought about that? They didn't have you. Father, you've created every person in this room for your glory. 
I pray for anyone in this room who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ, that they might bow their knee to him today, that those that do would understand that is big brother who died on the cross for them. He is the, he is the true older brother of the prodigal sons who did not see working for his father as something heinous, but as a joy. And every single person in this room who knows the Lord Jesus Christ has the third person of the Trinity inside them to guide them, convict them, comfort them, and empower them to do the work of the local church. I pray that we would come together in our diversity, be unified around the essentials, care for one another on key issues, and hold loosely those third-tier items. Might you be honored and glorified in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.